0: Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox. And today, Dr. Gerald Evans at Queen's University has some thoughts on a sixth COVID wave this spring. Lawyer and researcher Kevin Como says Canada needs to get busy and expose dirty Russian money in our midst. And Matthew Johnson at MediaSmarts talks about International Fact-Checking Day and the importance of individuals taking the time to fact check their information sources just because it's on the internet doesn't necessarily mean it's true so let's get started it is uh, time to take a look at what is uh, being uh, addressed by experts as a potential sixth COVID-19 wave across Canada. The most contagious BA2 sub of Omicron, which is now the dominant version of the virus in several provinces, coupled with loosened public health measures, is driving the increase in daily case counts and hospitalization across Canada. Here to talk about it from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, is infectious disease specialist Dr. Gerald Evans. Dr. Evans, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program.
1: Good morning, Sterling. Thanks
0: for having me. It's good to have you with us, Dr. Evans. We have you quoted on Global News on a story that uh, went across the the country. It looks like we're heading towards another spring wave, says Dr. Gerald Evans. So tell us why, sir. Is it just to be expected? It's spring. It's that time of year when all sorts of activity just naturally occurs. So naturally, there will be more activity in, in every area of human activity. Or is there more to it than just spring?
1: Well, actually, uh, typically with coronaviruses, one would expect actually a, a continued decline from the winter months. Uh, coronaviruses in general tend to be seasonal between December and March. So uh, actually going into spring, we should be seeing dropping numbers. And the reason that we're not is really twofold. Okay. One, the, B, the BA2 uh, Omicron sublineage that you mentioned, which is about 1.4 times more transmissible than the BA1 sublineage. And the second one is that really there has been a, a fairly broad uh, Relaxation of public health protections that are out there. So it uh, it it really, when people get out in the warm weather, they're typically outside. So you actually would expect less transmission, not more. But but those two factors are really leading into things. And 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 we are clearly into a sixth wave. Certainly, where I am here in Ontario, there's no question. Our numbers are short, starting to show a steep rise again. Um, so a sixth wave is going to be upon us. And the science table here in Ontario that I sit on, we actually modeled and um, showed that there would be a another wave uh, that would occupy most of the month of April into early May.
0: Dr. Evans, there's uh, this, this increase in activity that you're quoting in Ontario. We're talking now case counts and hospitalizations, sir? Yes, both. Exactly. Uh, And and I think it's really important to
1: understand, you know, that the narrative here is that we have to live with COVID, which has been really pushed by virtually every jurisdiction across Canada. Right. But we have to understand that as case numbers go up, there is a fixed percentage of people that are going to do uh, a little bit more poorly and have more severe disease that's going to require hospitalizations and we're going to see uh, a rise in deaths and and uh, you know i think we need to look quick, very quickly across the atlantic at the experience now in western europe uk and ireland where hospitalizations have gone have skyrocketed again and hospitals once again are being overwhelmed and that's what happens when you just have huge numbers of cases you cannot um prevent hospitalization completely yes we're going to see less than we would have seen in earlier phases of the pandemic and that's because we've got great vaccine rollout and and good vaccine uptake and we sure. know vaccines work but we're going to see hospitalizations and of course unfortunately we're going to see deaths as well so um the the real challenge you know i'd say sterling is we kind of went into this with the idea that um my colleagues and i as physicians we had uh, um, medications that we could give people to prevent them from getting more severe illness and being hospitalized. But just this week, we lost one of them. Uh, citrovimab, which is a monoclonal antibody we now know has very poor activity against BA2. Oh, okay. So now we're left with Paxlovin. Um, and so we've gone from having what is essentially maybe two or three um, things that we could use. And now we're really kind of down to
0: one. Dr. Evans, I'd like to pick up on something you, you mentioned in passing. Uh, and it's it, uh, I'm, I'm putting a political twist on it because it's what I do. Elizabeth May has uh, been reported testing positive for COVID as of a couple of days ago. And she says she's really sick and she's not likely to be hospitalized, but it's no fun at all. And she's frankly very angry. She says all of this uh, relaxation of restrictions is precisely why I feel as crummy as I do today. I shouldn't have this. It's because people have taken their masks off. And she's angry, and she's not feeling very well. How right is she, though, Dr. Evans, about the embrace of lo- loosened restrictions that so many millions of us have so enthusiastically done in the last couple of weeks?
1: Well, she's right in that the, 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 it increased the probability that she and others were going to get into and and I, I'm always reminded when people feel really sick, and you know I've had the flu, my influenza myself a few times. Yeah, you're not usually in your best mood, and usually you're gonna, you're going to go out and, and uh, sort of say, "Oh, how did I get this?" That's right. But having said, yeah, having said that, though, yeah, absolutely, we have relaxed these public health protections that are out there, um, and and I would say it's not that we've. Um, You know, it's just that we've got a narrative that's built out there now, and everyone after two years of a pandemic just wants to embrace the narrative. The narrative is, it's over, we're fine, nobody's going to get really sick because we're all vaccinated, uh, let's get on with doing everything, but... People are still going to get sick. I'm, I, you know, I do perceive this as a physician. I take care of people uh, at the hospital I work at here in Kingston, Kingston Health Sciences Center, and you know we see hospitalized, very ill, intubated, ventilated patients, and many of whom uh, actually, unfortunately, will go on to um, to die. And 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 I think people just have to keep that perspective on things. And yes, you're going to hear lots of cases where somebody had a, a very mild course and they go, ah, it's nothing. It was just a sure. cold. But the fact of the matter is, in some people, and and that's an um, a, you know fixed percentage of the number of cases we see it is actually a pretty you know a deadly illness and can be very very severe
0: dr evans i'm going to quote you again and hope our newsroom in toronto got it right quote we're facing a bit of a critical staffing issue right now in healthcare. we don't have full staffing at the moment and that's going to be a challenge and that's going to be an ongoing challenge uh, this attributed to you could you flesh it out for us a little bit please
1: Oh yeah absolutely here's the metric that that no government is looking at and it's bad enough that they they're not looking at case counts as much as they did because they've cut testing off the problem that we have is that with large numbers now uh, of community transmission and i would say unfortunately we're we're worse than you are in dc but you guys look like you're trending up it it impacts hospital staffing yeah. and long term care staffing. We have so many people infected. We don't want them to come to work at least for a, a number of days because we're worried about them transmitting it. And that has put a real crunch in healthcare. So never mind cases of COVID in hospital, we're not able to staff the hospital just to do all of the usual kind of non-COVID care that's out there. And we have, you know, um, right now we've been running over 100 people off every day at the hospital with COVID. That number continues to rise and climb. I expect it to remain that way for a few weeks yet. Um, and that's what's really challenging, but it's not a metric that the that the government's looking at. Nobody sort of tracks. Well, how many people are off today, and how bad is your critical care unit in terms of staffing? Yeah, and that's going to be a real problem. I
0: wonder, Doctor Evans. We've only got a minute left, sir, and it's it's unfortunate, but I, I'd I'd be interested in your opinion because uh, in addition to those realities you've just cited with respect to, to, to staff absences, we're also noting that a lot of people. I've had two doctors, a specialist and my own family doc, retire. In the last two years, they just got just burned to a crisp and walked away. Well, how much how much of what, what is burnout contributing to the overall picture? Oh, it's huge, yeah.
1: Because uh, you're absolutely right. Those of uh, us, and I'm, I'm an older physician, that are closer to the ends of our uh, career days, uh, some of this, some of this has just burnt us out and said, "Okay, I was planning to retire in another two years, but I think I'm going to retire, you know, now." Yep. And And absolutely, absolutely.
0: So that's that is. It's also not a helpful factor as we face this. Uh, Thirty seconds. Endemic. Are, are we going to reach endemic status? Which essentially means, to the mind of the layman, it's a, it's still in our midst but it's being managed.
1: Uh, We're probably heading that way without question. The evolutionary virologists I I speak to are certainly saying that. The question is when is that going to happen? And a reminder to people that the Spanish flu back in 1918-1919 was still causing pandemic waves but in 1928. So it it can take a long time. The only thing I can say optimistically for everyone is that vaccination is likely to accelerate our ability to have this virus become an endemic one.
0: Indeed. Dr. Gerald Evans, a pleasure to speak to you this morning, sir. We do appreciate your taking some time to spend with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: In authoritarian countries, Canada has a reputation for having the weakest anti-money laundering laws in the Democratic West. I'm quoting now from an article by Doug Todd in the Vancouver Sun yesterday. So with the recent crackdown on Russian oligarchs who prop up Vladimir Putin, experts say it's urgent that Canada finally and rapidly make it possible to track the transnationals who secretly ship ill-gotten money into this country through a process dubbed snow washing one of those experts calling for this rapid uh, enforcement of this is uh, our next guest kevin como mr como is a corporate lawyer and a senior fellow with the cd howe institute who has spent a great deal of time researching uh, dirty money in canada kevin como joins us from oakville ontario mr como kevin good morning sir Hey, good morning, Stu. How are it, you? It, I'm well, thank you. It's good to have you with us. This is something Kevin we've done here in British Columbia with the money laundering inquiry, uh, and a lot of eye-popping details came out about hockey bags full of cash being brought into casinos and just a st- Astonishing amounts of money being literally laundered uh, before our eyes, or at least before our cameras, while officials who are supposedly surveilling all of this chose to look the other way. Uh, it's a problem in Canada. How big a problem, Kevin?
2: Well, it is it is impossible to measure because um, all of this is secretive, of course. But we believe the magnitude is in over all the years, is well over $100 billion of money laundered through Canada.
0: And is it true, by the way, uh, you're the person that has done more research than probably most Canadians on this subject, is, uh, are our laws the weakest of the Western democracies?
2: Yes, they are, clearly. Um, So you can incorporate a company um, across Canada and you don't have to uh, publicly disclose the uh the beneficial owners of those corporations. Mm-hmm. You can just use some lawyer or accountant somewhere to act as directors, and then that company can buy land anywhere in Canada, I'll talk about B.C. in a second, and not disclose who the owners are. Right. So you, clearly it's so opaque. You just can't tell what's going on, where this dirty money is coming from, and who those... Um, those corrupt persons are that are laundering their money
0: in, Kevin. And in Vancouver particularly, Kevin, over the years, we've come uh, to be very, very much aware of the influence of, of Asian money in our marketplace, particularly as it affects realities like housing prices. You see multi-million dollar mansions being owned by a student Come on. Uh, I mean, we're not stupid and we see all of this going on in our midst and we see very little with respect to enforcement or even official notice of all of this activity going on. Uh, And you say it's because, well, the whole the whole process is secretive. Why is that? Well,
2: it's why it's secretive or why why you're not catching them.
0: Well, I think a combination of both. I suspect they're connected.
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. So it's secretive because the criminals, of course, don't want to be able to have uh, law enforcement agencies, whether in Canada or around the world, trace that money back to them and their illegal crimes. Sure. That's getting us The reason we're not catching them is because we haven't put in publicly accessible registries of beneficial ownership, with the exception of the DC Landowner Transparency Act. Mm-hmm. The problem with that um, that act. Is that we have to give, you know, definitely have to shake um, shake the hand of the Bermuda government, uh, of the uh, B.C. government and say, fabulous job, good for you, except you've left out the key parts out of the registry. So it could be way more effective if you just made a couple of fundamental changes.
0: mm mm-hmm. Now, you're hopeful. You're one of the few people I've seen, by the way, quoted anywhere, Kevin, in the wake of this deal struck between the NDP and the liberals, the almost a coalition arrangement with Trudeau and Singh. You are rather enthusiastic about the deal only and purely from the perspective of dirty money. You say that these now that they have the effective uh, control of government, uh, they can quickly move to a point where we are in a position to start exposing dirty money. How would the federal government, now that they have the clout and the ability to do it as rapidly as they need to, what would they do? What would you have them do?
2: Well, the very first thing they need to be doing is to be saying to the provinces that we will be doing all of the verification of the identity information that needs to be filed on the registry, i.e., you should be filing uh, certified copies of government-issued photo ID, such as a passport, driver's license. Mm -hmm. BC, not only do they not verify that information, they don't even require you to file that information. So you can just make up a name of someone anywhere. You can say John Smith lives in London, England. Right. And you'd have no way of proving whether they exist or they don't. Whereas if you put in the verification system, which is very expensive, but if you put in that verification system, then the government itself will check that government-issued ID and be able to prove that the person exists and they are who they say they are. Right. And that, that baseline allows you to start catching the bad guys.
0: So if, if British, I'm absurd, sorry, Kevin, Kevin to interrupt, but you, you yeah. say that British Columbia at least had, deserves the tip of the hat for at least coming up with some kind of law, at least being prepared to, in some way, address the issue of money laundering. And they have yeah. passed this act, however, incomplete. So th- their heart was in the right place, but they didn't get it done, is what you're saying. Correct. Correct.
2: But the good news is they can immediately make changes that are very cheap to do. I understand they didn't put in verification because that costs lots of money. The federal government should be doing that. And the federal government announces that. All of the provinces can quickly say, ooh, that's great because not only will we not have to spend that money, but if we put in a public registry, it significantly increases the amount of properties that can be seized, forfeited, sold. The profits from that Go to the governments, both in the provinces and the federal government, sure. which will more than pay for verification. Right, so it's a great win-win for everyone, and we can start catching those Russian oligarchs as well as get rid of the Chinese money that is coming into Vancouver and other, other places in Canada.
0: Well, exactly. And and I was just about to ask you the, the, the difference between the two, because certainly in this corner of Canada, we are acutely aware of the incredible influx of Asian money that has really twisted the marketplace, particularly housing in this marketplace, into the stratosphere. Of that those huge gobs of money coming into Vancouver every year. Not all of it is Asian money, Kevin. So how much Russian money do you think is in B.C.?
2: You you really can't tell because it's all secretive. But you can only tell magnitudes. But if you live in an authoritarian regime, such as Russia, uh, you know, China, uh, you have always the risk that someone closer to you closer to power, rather, can artificially confiscate your assets. Where So if they move those assets out into a Western liberal democracy where we have the rule of law, you can't arbitrarily confiscate anything, they greatly reduce that risk of arbitrary confiscation. Right. So there's a, there's a massive incentive for those people from criminals and, and oligarchs from all around the world to send their dirty money into Western liberal democracies. And when they do so, they're going to pick that country with the weakest laws yeah. against uh, money laundering, and that's Canada. Yeah. Now we've that's seen why it's pouring in.
0: That I was just going to say, we've seen examples in recent weeks since the beginning of the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. We've seen many Western democracies uh, seize the assets of some of these oligarchs, these Putin pals. Uh, have They've had their ships, their houses, other investments seized by governments. To the best of your knowledge, Mr. Como, has the government of Canada actually seized any assets? I'm not aware of
2: any assets that have been seized. And uh, yet, we could significantly increase our probability of seizing those if we just started making changes right away. In BC, you could be making a change doesn't cost a cent, and they could do it in days on their public registry for land. Right. They just they just have to change keyword searches. Mm-hmm. Right now, you can only put in the name of one person, or you can put in the name of a property lot number, and so. If you wanted to check to see, uh, get a list of, of Russians that are laundering their money in Canada, you'd have to put in the name of either every single person in Russia mm. or put in every property uh, ID number in BC. Crazy. Yeah. You could simply change it by saying, allow the searches to be keyword searches to just give me, uh, put in Russia and get a list of everyone who has a connection to Russia. Same thing with China. Mr. Carmel, I- would that would change the whole way in which we catch those bad guys.
0: Indeed, and and as a follow-up and a final question to you, Kevin, and we're grateful for your time on a Saturday morning, especially very sporting of you, sir. How confident or how optimistic are you, Kevin, that this new coalition, this trudeau Singh thing, is going to actually get anything done with respect to money laundering?
2: I think there's a huge incentive for them to get something done because there is a large amount of, political outcry people are dying right now and we in canada can do much to to stop that to put pressure on putin to stop that war because all that dirty money that was laundered in canada that's a bad thing but that's also a significant weapon we can use that in order to start seizing those assets of those russian oligarchs if we can put in a properly constructed publicly accessible registry of beneficial ownership. And the quicker we do that, the quicker we can help put pressure on Putin to end this
0: war. Indeed. Kevin Como, thank you so much for doing this with us this morning. This is terribly important information, and it's uh, it's good of you to share it with us. My pleasure, sir. Kevin Como is a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute. He's a corporate lawyer joining us this morning from uh, Oakville, Ontario. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Today is International Fact-Checking Day. Now, when you, you see it on the surface of things, you go, well, of course it would be. Following up April Fool's, there'd be kind of a necessary thing to get in there and clean up all the, all the debris from the April Fool's gags. But frankly, friends, there's a lot more to it than that. And here to tell us more is Matthew Johnson, the Director of Education at Mediasmarts.ca. Mr. Johnson joins us this morning from Ottawa. Matthew, good morning and welcome. Thanks, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Tell us the real story behind International Fact-Checking Day, if you would, please.
3: Sure. Well, you know, people started talking about it back actually in 2014 um, at a time when it was already becoming really clear that we needed to raise more awareness of of fact-checking and of of the need to verify information, especially online information. Mm -hmm. Um, And a couple of years later, it it became an annual event, and it's now in its fifth year
0: and now, the, uh, I think it becomes more important that suddenly the whole April Fool's gag thing disappears in a big hurry when you suddenly look at the reality that International Fact-Checking Day addresses, Matthew, and here we are in the middle of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine, and a very big part of that Uh, activity over there is disinformation, particularly Russian disinformation. The Ukrainians are countering with some of their own, but the Russians are masters of disinformation, and that is, uh, they think at least, assisting their cause. How much attention is International Fact-Checking Day paying to Russia this year?
3: Oh, I think it's definitely the top story in uh, in disinformation and misinformation right now. And it's really interesting to see the the different kinds that are coming out, that we have what you might call classic disinformation coming out from Russia, which really is intended mostly to to provoke doubt, not to convince you of anything, but to, to make it feel like you can't be sure whether anything is real. Right, And that's what's coming out of russia and what's happening inside russia really is more classic propaganda where they are trying to sell a particular narrative to the russian people but for the rest of the world they're really trying just to weaken resolve by spreading disinformation as many possible different stories as possible to try to keep people from being united against the
0: invasion and uh, talk to us a little bit about the Nobel Prize that was received last year by a couple of journalists, specifically because of their focus on fact-checking.
3: Well, that, I think, is, is really uh, an indication of how we have been able to get fact-checking and, and more broadly, verifying information, and, and, even more broadly, digital media literacy on the agenda, the fact that the the Nobel uh, Committee is recognizing people for doing fact-checking work, for, for doing the essential work of journalism, because these are journalists um, who were recognized. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helping both people in the media industry and the rest of us who are now, because of social media, Part of the media industry, we are now our broadcasters to our own friends and followers. Sure. It's helping everyone recognize the importance of knowing how, not just to doubt, but also to actively verify what we see online and in other
0: media as well. The Canadian government seems quite determined uh, to interfere or intervene, shall we say, in the Internet. They uh, are de- determined by the looks of their preliminary paperwork, at least, Matthew, to create uh, a policing role for the CRTC on the Internet uh, with respect to uh, credibility, fact-checking, all of that sort of thing. Is that sort of government intrusion productive or not? Well, you know,
3: media Smart's is an educational organization. We're not an activist organization. So we don't really take a position on on legislation and regulation. Okay. Um, but, you know, there are definitely are things that we know governments can do, that the research has shown governments can do positively. Uh, and some of that the federal government uh, and some provincial governments and territorial governments are doing it already, such as supporting digital media literacy education, Um, and uh, providing um, opportunities for platforms to work together with government. Because in most cases, social media platforms, video platforms, it's not actually in their long-term interest to be um, distributing a lot of mis- and disinformation. Mm -hmm. And so working proactively with them to find solutions is another thing that uh, governments around the world have been starting to do.
0: Matthew, one of the things that uh, journalists rely on governments, no matter where they may be, uh, is uh, compliance with something called freedom of information requests, uh, which is more more obviously prevalent here in the West than it is in authoritarian regimes. However, here in British Columbia, there are initiatives underway by the local provincial government to, well, shall we say, make it a, a touch more difficult and perhaps even more expensive for journalists to submit those requests and receive answers in a timely fashion. How Important is that process, the freedom of information process.
3: Well, again, I can't really comment on, on a specific um, regulation or legislation like that uh, as an educational organization. No, but, but I'm just talking about know, the what process we, we in try general. Do is we try to make all Canadians aware of the rights that they have um, with regard to media and information, and right. certainly freedom of information is one of those essential rights. Um, so, you know, part of it is making sure that Canadians do know that they have rights when it comes to media, whether those are rights in relation to the government or rights in relation to the corporations that own the online spaces that we use, mm-hmm. and helping them understand that, uh, that we have power as citizens and as consumers,
0: as a, as an uh, uh, uh the kind of information oriented organization that you are uh, at Media Smarts, Matthew, uh, what sort of recommendations would you be making to Canadians in terms of being kind of on our toes with respect to having that sort of fact-checking mentality as we browse the news and so on?
3: We actually have a program, it's called Break the Fake, and you can access it at breakthefake.ca. And it teaches four quick steps for verifying what you see online. Um, And each of these, most of the time, you'll only need to use one of them. Um, Most of them, once you learn them, they'll only take you 30 seconds or at most a minute to do but it really is important to do these things before you share anything or for any piece of information that uh, engages you emotionally that you might act on. Okay. So, the first of these is use fact checking tools. Uh, you can visit sites like Snopes. We also have a, a custom search engine that searches a dozen different ser- uh, fact checkers all at once to okay. so get the whole picture. The second is to find the source, figure it. When you see something shared on social media, Find out where it originally came from. That's how you can find out. Maybe if someone shared something from a satire site like The Onion, but didn't realize it was satire.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly.
3: Yeah. If you don't recognize the source, then you need to verify the source. Um, If it's a newspaper or something like that that you've never heard of, do a Google search. Look on Wikipedia. Don't listen to what the source tells you about themselves. Find out what other people are saying about them. Are they generally seen as a reliable source? And finally, check other sources um, see what other news outlets are saying about a story. Usually, if only one news outlet is covering something, you want to be cautious about it until the full picture
0: emerges. All right, breakthefake.ca. I'm, I'm sitting here going through the list with you as, as you're reading it on this very helpful uh, website. And, and also, friends, you can go to Matthew's home website, mediasmarts.ca. Our guest, Matthew Johnson, is Director of Education at Mediasmarts.ca. DA and, and CA, rather. And Matthew, we thank you for taking a few moments on International Fact Checking Day to tell us what the heck it's all about. My pleasure, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. Matthew Johnson joining us from Ottawa this morning. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.